I'm very happy to introduce Caitlin Messler, our last speaker. Um, Caitlin is coming to us from the Edelstein Center for the History and Philosophy of Science in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And her main points of research is the interaction of Jewish and, cult and Christian cultures in medieval Europe with particular emphasis on magic and medicine as points of contact between the two cultures. Um, she's currently working towards a book, The Jewish Sorcerer on Trial, Jews and Magic in Western Christian Courts, 1290-1498, and also on a study on the translation of Latin medicine into Hebrew in the late 12th century. And she will talk to us today about on the topic of beyond the Trachtenberg paradigm, new approaches to popular and learned traditions of magic in medieval Europe. Please. Well, I should start uh, as, as the final speaker here. I should start by really thanking you all for what has been uh, really a lovely workshop to those of you who helped organize, to Sasha Stern for uh, guiding this group that's been producing wonderful scholarship, uh, both in written form and as we can see uh, in conference to Georgia for uh, helping make all of the arrangements. Uh, it's always intimidating. I, I, I always get to, to speak at the same conferences uh, Ephraim, and of course he's known as one of the great experts on Jewish magic, so he will be sure to catch each and every one of my mistakes. I can try. But I learned so much from you. I, I've come to hear you, so don't worry about it. I've given you a handout there will also be quite a lot of visual information. I'm trying to distract you from looking directly at me. Um, you can take your pick. The handout is all English. The, what will be up here will mostly be the Hebrew versions of the texts. Uh, I was too lazy to put them both on the handout. Um, so it is now more than three quarters of a century since the publication of Joshua Trachtenberg's Jewish Magic and Superstition, a study in folk religion. The study is extremely dated and in certain respects deeply flawed, but Trachtenberg's enumeration of significant themes in Jewish magic remains unsurpassed, and the work as a whole is full of remarkable insights that scholars would do well to follow. I open with this mixed assessment of Trachtenberg because the question of popular Jewish magic can hardly be approached without first taking into account the centrality of this theme in Trachtenberg's exceedingly influential work, um, which is signaled already in the title by the terms superstition and folk religion. The paradigm that Trachtenberg sets forth is simple. Magic is a marginal phenomenon, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I rarely will be reading text that's on your sheet or on the board, uh, I will speak, be speaking about them, but I leave it up to you if you want to read them or not. The centrality of my argument will not hinge on minute details of the passages, so uh, you are free to um, snooze if you would prefer to just listen, or you can read them. But for Trachtenberg, mar magic is a marginal phenomenon that develops among the people alongside folk beliefs. If this sort of folk religion was not universally condemned by the rabbis, it is because widespread acceptance forced the rabbis, quote, to accord it a grudging recognition and acceptance. Trachtenberg's methodology ostensibly consisted in examining learned, and notably printed, sources 
or evidence of these popular beliefs and practices, which are characterized for him by their connection to marginal folk beliefs. To this end, Sefer Hasidim served as such a central source that he cites it no fewer than 182 times, more times than the word remember appears in the Bible, as we've learned from our previous talk. <laughs> Nearly one out of every three notes in the book contains a reference to Sefer Hasidim. We now know that Sefer Hasidim isn't quite the unfiltered lens on popular practice that Trachtenberg took it for. The reliance on printed sources also distorted his perspective of magical texts themselves, for he knew neither the Hechelot material nor any of the extensive magic from the Cairo Geniza, which arguably represent opposite extremes in terms of access to popular and elite magic. Ultimately, however, Trachtenberg's analysis couldn't escape the weight of his sources. Despite setting out a particular paradigm, he repeatedly finds himself using learned sources to talk about learned magic. Indeed, he acknowledges that women's access to magic was, quote, narrowly restricted by virtue of the esoteric and learned base of magic. Now, Ephraim's book takes the material of, of learned magic from the same traditions and you know, expands on really what it means to look at what the learned um, elite at the time were doing, what the rabbis taking, not as something of folk belief that the rabbis were reporting on, but how it actually fit into rabbinic culture. One way to improve on Trachtenberg's work is to repeat the exercise with additional methodological rigor in how we extract data about popular practice from these sources. And there are scholars who have succeeded with such an approach. And we've seen Vogel's talk earlier today. Elisheva Baumgarten has done wonderful things in that direction. Plenty of other scholars I could uh, mention. However, what I will argue in the rest of this paper is that there are other ways to think about popular traditions of magic in medieval Europe, some of which rely on Jewish sources that have not been adequately exploited, and others of which rely on information preserved in Christian sources. Now, I'd like to begin by considering the dichotomy of popular and elite, or popular and learned, which for me is primarily a difference of access. When dealing with such a comparison, it is all too easy to overlook the complexity of the historical situation, which is not a simple dichotomy, nor even a continuum from, say, most accessible to least accessible, but rather a more complex matter in which popular and elite can take on many forms. There are plenty of theoretical models that could help us disentangle such a situation, and I hope I can be forgiven for falling back on a schema proposed by my doctor father, uh, Richard Kiekeffer, which I find particularly useful in this case. Kiekeffer's model of common and specialized traditions of medieval magic. Um, and he worked specifically with the Latin tradition. Simply put, Kiekeffer describes how different forms of magic can be found within specialized groups, access to which is limited by a variety of social factors, of which education and milieu are perhaps the most significant. And so, learned medical magic is mainly accessible to those with a certain level of medical education. A certain amount of astral magic was likewise accessible only to those with enough training to understand the technical terminology and identify the particular astrological conditions necessary for the operations. Uh, there are many other types of specialized traditions that could be identified. In the Jewish world, we can identify parallels to the specialized medical and astrological traditions, as well as additional examples, 
whether the Hekalot materials or practices of the Chassil Ashkenaz and the Tosafists, or magic associated with the Sefer Yitzirah, which presumed a certain amount of philosophical and or mystical training. The elite in this model is that's not equivalent, at least not necessarily equivalent to the rabbinic elite, even if there is significant overlap. Of particular importance for our concern is Kikever's designation of the common tradition in contrast to such specialized traditions. The common tradition is not defined by the techniques themselves, but rather by the access to them. The common tradition consists precisely of those magical practices that are not confined to any limited segment of society. Doesn't mean everybody uses them, but it means everybody could potentially use them. They're not, they're not confined so clearly as uh, specialized traditions. Simple amulets are perhaps the most obvious example, but there was great access to amulets across social boundaries. They were not within the exclusive purview of any particular group. In contrast, an amulet inscribed with specific mystical names or one carved with an astrological image during a particular conjunction of planets would not belong to the common tradition. So where does this distinction get us? I raise it to emphasize three points that are crucial for an understanding of, quote, popular Jewish magic. First of all, that literacy itself is not the most helpful boundary between popular and learned. In the Christian tradition, we might argue that Latin literacy constituted the first barrier to the specialized magical traditions. But we cannot say the same of Hebrew literacy. Again, as Ephraim has shown in some of his work, written spells can often be remarkably simple from a linguistic perspective, relying heavily on liturgy and the Bible. Uh, a Jewish schoolboy's education would probably suffice to access a great deal of written magic. Secondly, we cannot judge magic by the apparent complexity of the spell itself. And this we can contrast with uh, Gabriel's um, account of alchemy, where you can look at the text itself and see how, you know, how theoretical versus how practical it is and make some assessments based on that. I would say that doesn't apply as well in the case of magic. Instructions of many steps might still be accessible to the lay reader, while a seemingly simple amulet may nevertheless rely on an insider's knowledge. And thirdly, while the specialized traditions are characterized by limitation, we will see that elements of specialized traditions can occasionally escape their limited spheres and enter into the common tradition. In contrast to Trachtenberg's bottom-up model, we must also consider the possibility of a trickle-down effect. And in fact, there's a fourth um, Fourth item I can mention um, that, was, that was inspired by Nadia's presentation, which is that there, is, there does not seem to be an issue of incompatibility between common and specialized traditions, like there might be between the, the popular calendars and the scientific calendars. Um, what's happening in the common tradition, what's happening in the specialized tradition can exist side by side and often does exist side by side without um, producing any uh, incompatibility of the cosmology behind it, for example. Um, and that's in part because the, the underlying theory is not usually addressed except within specialized traditions, and they can theorize how the common tradition of magic works um, to make it all fit together. The first case study I want to consider will highlight the value of thinking about Jewish magic in terms of common and specialized traditions. 
One of the most famous amulets in the Latin tradition is the Sator Repo Square, which dates back at least to the first century of the Common Era. This protective square could be written out and carried, or drawn on the wall or floor of a building. It could even be consumed, as we will see shortly. It was known in a variety of contexts, and undoubtedly could be classified as part of the uh, common tradition of Christian magic. In the 12th century, it was incorporated into a medical text from Salerno, the book on the conditions of women. In a list of remedies for expelling a fetus from the womb, the author writes, let these names be written on cheese or butter, and let them be given to eat. Most of the letters to be written seem to be nonsense, but the five words of the Sator Repo Square are clear, even if several of the manuscripts preserved uh, distort the words a little bit. Now, this text was translated into Hebrew at the end of the 12th century. It survives in only one fragmentary copy, but fortunately, it preserves the passage in question. We could say that here, the words of, of Sator Repo, if not the visual layout of the amulet, first entered into the specialized tradition of Hebrew medicine. It did not undergo widespread diffusion in Jewish culture, but it did become theoretically accessible to those with the inclination and ability and access to read this text, um, which as far as we know from its survival was nobody. Toward the end of the 13th century, a Hebrew medical text known as the Sefer HaYosher included a version of the same passage. On a technical level, it is a very simple procedure, one that would be all too easy to define as popular. But it appears to be limited to these medical texts, um, all of which uh, cannot be called bestsellers. Unless new evidence surfaces, we have no basis for considering uh, this as popular as it relates to the Jewish tradition. However, this edible version of the Sator Repo uh, is not the only manifestation of this amulet in Hebrew sources. JTS Manuscript 8114 is a miscellany of magical recipes and texts that includes a combination of simple and more technical magical writings. Here we see the visual format of the amulet accompanied by instructions for its use during, once again, a difficult birth. Here we have what I think are two separate recipes that both rely on the Sator Repo Square, the first of which involves dissolving words of the amulet into water and drinking it, and the second which involves walking with it three times around the woman. If our only evidence of the Hebrew Sator Repo Square was from this manuscript, we could call it a specialized tradition and move on, but it's not. Here's an example of the amulet written in the blank space at the end of a prayer book. The accompanying text is different. Um, it still concerns difficult births, but it employs different instructions and is attributed to a certain um, Rabbi Peretz. Which one? Well, I bet uh, Counterfogel has some thoughts on that. <laughs> yep. And here's another copy of the square with the same Rabbi Peretz text, this one written on the blank leaf of a Bible. And that's not all. A remarkable manuscript shows the author's progress in drawing the square. The manuscript itself is a compilation of mystical, magical, and rabbinic materials that represents a high degree of learning. But again, the square is not restricted to such contexts. Here's another prayer book containing my personal favorite version. The marginalia added in the 16th century contains the square in Latin, oops, the square in Latin here, and then a flawed version in Hebrew there. 
a rendering that misses the point that the words are supposed to read in the same direction each way. The text uh, is partly illegible here. Um, but we can, what we can see prescribes writing these things as a remedy for worms. I think it was just a way to tell uh, how to pronounce them, because uh, according to the structure of it, whoever copied it knew what he was doing. Um, right. It's, it's possible that it's phonetically a little problematic also, but right, it might be meant simply for pronunciation. But why, when the instruction is to write, um, why does that matter? Now, the legible part of the text also includes a string of Hebrew characters that look senseless, but which is actually a phonetic rendering of Psalm 3-2 in Latin, um, suggesting some oral transmission um, from the Latin tradition. There's a lot we can unpack here, but the key point is that the Satoa Repo Square circulated in a variety of contexts. In other words, by the 15th century or so, it had entered Kefer's common tradition. One final note, the amulet has surely reached the apogee of popular magic in the past few years. In 2011, I found this trinket advertised as the seal of King Solomon. The sheet that came with it promised that it would bring me money and success. And did it work? Well, I put it on my keychain and then managed for the only time in my life to lose my keys. Interpret that how you will. These examples of the Sator Repo Square are suggestive of another place to look for the common tradition of magic, prayer books. Of course, it's true that there are elite prayer books, and it's true that not everyone could afford a prayer book. But the prayer book is nevertheless one of the most accessible texts in the Jewish tradition, and there is good reason to consider the magical material that circulated widely in prayer books as part of the common tradition. Our first example... Well, once more. Already back to the beginning. Just already back. I'm. I'll just start over. No, we can. Mm. We, can we don't seem to have a mouse. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I, I showed something that the. Uh, She's telling also what happened to her. Yeah. <laughs> Got the mouse. Found it. There you go. Oops. Not where we're supposed to be. There. Okay. Magic versus technology. Our first example concerns the problem of traveling by sea. In this Italian prayer book, we find a series of spells on the subject of sea travel. I've only transcribed here the first three of them. The first one involves carving the magical name Agla, on the boat and reciting a prayer for rescue that also incorporates the name Agla. The second one aims to calm the sea by writing the name Agla on a broken reed and throwing it into the sea. The third one, to make the boat stand still, simply instructs the user to say the words Nitzavat Bat Uziel, which is presumably the name of a female angel. Now, for our purposes, it is significant that once again we're not dealing with a unique example. We find the same sequence of three spells elsewhere. And here we actually have the vowels for pronouncing Nitzevat um, Bat Uziel. And I found it. Dating on these? Approximate dating on these? Um, these would be probably 14th or early 15th century. They're both Italian. Okay. Um, okay. I could get you more okay. specific information later. 
Um, and I found an instance of the second spell, uh, the one with the broken reed circulating on its own. Um, and I could multiply these, uh, but I have more pictures. Most of my images are from the Parma collection, so I'm showing you the Parma ones I have, and uh, I, could, uh, I could tell you of others, but that's not nearly as interesting as looking at them. So let's consider another example. At the end of this prayer book, and it's the same one that has the Satora Repo in both Latin and Hebrew, a few spells have been added. We can see here that two of them are both concerned with ensuring a safe journey. First one builds on the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, which is well known in Jewish liturgy and ritual practice. Um, and it's a great example of where a high level of literacy is not necessary. But here, the, the, the verses are interspersed with what are presumably divine names. Uh, but of more immediate interest is the second text which begins with the Historiola, according to which Nachmanides sent this spell from Acre to Barcelona, the implication being that it protected him on his famous journey to the Holy Land. It is not, however, of his devising, for it claims to be a revelation from heaven imparted to the 11th century Gaon Shmuel ben Chofni through the Sefer Yetzirah. The majority of the text concerns the recitation of biblical verses, but towards the end it brings in more names and the common magical formula, agla agla rota. As you may be predicting at this point in my talk, we can find another example of the text here, and another one here, um, from my Parma images. Materials such as these may have originated elsewhere. There is reason to suspect influence of Hasidashkenaz traditions in some of the examples I've shown. But their circulation in prayer books represents a certain popularization of the material outside the confines of a specialized tradition. This is not always the case. Here is an example of a private prayer book of a more elite character. The book is full of magical material that I have not seen in other prayer books. On the right, we have an amulet that not only includes magical uh, characteris, but also draws for its text on angelic traditions of Hechelot literature. In the middle, we have a text on the balador, the marking nut that Professor Boss has investigated. And on the left is a technique for catching a thief that involves baking a cake and writing the name of Metatron in four quadrants, as shown by the diagram. The results are shown by the cake spinning on its axis in response to an adjuration. By comparison with the previous examples, this is surely a book compiled by a specialized reader. But before we move on to the next section, I want to say a quick word about other material found in prayer books, um, especially because of the calendrical uh, origins of this conference. In particular, some prayer books include a variety of signs and portents. It might be going too far to classify all of this material as magical, at least inasmuch as it often lacks an active role for the user. In the Latin world, such material is more likely to be defined as superstition. But since it may bear a relation to divination in some cases, I wanted to give this quick example. Um, of course, similar materials, such as the Egyptian days, have been discussed recently by Nautatan uh, Iseru. Now, throughout this prayer book, we find not only days for bloodletting and material about dreams, but also lists of, quote, hard days, favorable days on which to begin activities, uh, predictions of rain and thunder and earthquakes, the qualities of each day of the month, which tell us good days for business or for oats 
or for telling your wife's secrets. And the Sefer Fafot, a widespread divinatory text based on the trembling of the body limbs. It is also difficult to categorize the sequence following the Amidah in some prayer books that begins with the 72 verses of protection, continues through a reading of Psalm 4, and includes a table of astrological and angelic correspondences for the seven days, encapsulated within a Yehiratzon prayer. The purpose of the latter does not seem to be calendrical, or at least not solely, but I must admit that in these cases I have more questions than answers at the moment. I will spend much less time commenting on the place of recipes in our discussion. Recipe collections are sometimes treated as though they're indicative of popular traditions of magic or medicine. But here, too, our previous caveats should apply. Furthermore, recipes often pose additional difficulties in understanding their origins, contents, and circulation. Our first of two examples is a collection of medical recipes that follows Sefer HaPiska, a Hebrew translation of Petrocello's Cures. It is evidently a learned manuscript associated with a medical milieu. If we may find a simple-looking amulet among the recipes, we, we are nevertheless forced to conclude that there's no reason to see this amulet as popular without additional evidence that it was known outside of this one manuscript. Our second example is a recipe collection that appears in a famous compendium of North French material, much of it of an elite rabbinic nature that has been studied by more than one person in this room. Here, too, we can find simple techniques that we might be tempted to consider popular. But once again, we cannot know to what extent they were known outside this manuscript. One exception may be the procedure for opening the heart, which Professor Bose just spoke about, um, which is the last of our examples here, uh, it, which varied from one version to the next, but which did circulate more widely in the Middle Ages. Now, for the rest of this talk, I want to consider the problem of popular Jewish magic from another perspective, the Latin evidence. And I want to begin with the question of figurines, which were almost always made of wax in the Middle Ages, though my image here from late antiquity is, from, is made of clay, which is why it survives. Medieval European Jews had remarkably little to say about the practice of acting on figurines by burning binding, burying, or pricking them with needles in order to cause the victim physical harm or mental states such as love or madness. In order to determine the uh, place of this practice among medieval Jews, let me begin as Trachtenberg would with the learned sources. So far, I have found exactly one reference to such a practice in the writings of an elite author, and it's a tricky one. In 1880, Moritz Gudmann published excerpts of a text called The Book of Angels, Sefer HaMalachim, which he found in a manuscript full of Hasidah Ashkenaz literature. In this manuscript, which belonged to Adolf Yelnik, the Book of Angels was attributed to Eleazar of Worms. One of Gudemann's excerpts offers a clear reference to the practice in question. Unfortunately, Yelnik's collection of manuscripts was never fully cataloged, and it suffered greatly in World War II. So far, no trace of this manuscript has turned up. Furthermore, Gudman mentions nothing of the date or provenance of the manuscript. This leaves us in a difficult situation. How can we establish the relevance of this passage um, to the context under discussion? 
which is to say medieval Europe? The answer lies in the Latin tradition. In the late 15th century, the convert Flavius Mithridates translated several works of Jewish mysticism into Latin. One of these works, the Book of Man, Liber de Homine, contains a patchwork of magical elements derived mainly from the Hasid Ashkenaz tradition. Flavia Buzetta in Paris has been working on this text. And when I presented Gudman's passage uh, at a conference, she realized that the Book of Man preserves a Latin translation of the passage in question, confirming not only that it circulated with pietist literature as Gudman claimed, but also that it was circulating in Italy before the end of the 15th century. The, some of those nice um, events that happens at conferences when you realize that somebody in the audience has the piece that you needed. Still, if we can, if it's a, a valid medieval Hasid Ashkenaz uh, quotation, still, it's not much as far as the evidence goes. Well, what about magical texts? Several examples of such figurines are found in the Hebrew translation of an Arabic text of astral magic, the goal of the wise, famous in Latin as the, under the name uh, Picatrix. Of course, translations are difficult to assess. In a long treatise like this, we cannot be certain that readers were ever interested in these particular passages rather than others, let alone um, do we find any influence outside of the text. Finally, there's an example of a love spell written in the margins of an Ashkenazi manuscript sometime around the beginning of the 16th century. And it's uh, in that particular margin. The concept itself, as well as instructions for using wax figurines, thus was not entirely absent among medieval Jews, at least in Ashkenaz and Italy, though these limited references suggest that it was hardly a widespread practice. There's one last Hebrew account that can help us shine light on the complex history of wax figurines. The northern French collection we saw earlier also contains an interesting tale of persecution, which I'm currently editing. Uh, the synonymous narrative recounts events that allegedly occurred in France in 992. There are issues with the dating, but that's for another talk. With a convert uh, attempting to destroy a Jewish community by hiding a wax figurine in the synagogue and reporting that the Jews were trying to use it to kill the local ruler. The account is muddled in several respects, but it points to a particular historical reality. Christians did accuse Jews of per performing sorcery with wax figurines. And apparently Jews were aware that this accusation existed. And while it may sound counterintuitive, I hope to show that there are some good reasons to consider the evidence of such accusations in our assessment of popular Jewish practice. Christian sorcery trials began to proliferate right around the year 1300. And descriptions of Jews and figurines are attested almost immediately. The first such case I have found is that of Guichard, the Bishop of Troyes, who stood trial in Paris from 1308 until his acquittal in 1313. The case was very high profile because Guichard was charged with the murder of both Blanche of Artois, who was the Queen Consort of Navarre and the Countess of Champagne, and the murder of her daughter, Joan I of Navarre, who was the Queen of Navarre and the Queen Consort of France. These are these are about as high level as you can get in murder charges. According to one witness, a Jew named Hagan from Troyes had assisted Guichard by preparing an image from wax, 
and it was such an image that Guichard allegedly used against Joan of Navarre. But the next case is even more explicit. Hugues Gerault, the Bishop of Cahors, came into conflict with Pope John XXII from the very outset of John's pontificate. He was put on trial in 1317 for misconduct as a bishop, but then charges arose that he had led two groups of conspirators in several convoluted and ultimately failed attempts to assassinate the pope and three cardinals. According to the extensive depositions, one of these groups, based in Toulouse, procured wax figurines of the pope and two of the cardinals from a, quote, baptized Jew, who was apparently a specialist in making them. The figurines were blessed in a public and scandalous church ceremony, but they were intercepted en route to Avignon, and the conspirators were arrested. The second group, based in Avignon, was led by Hugues himself, who tried to acquire figurines from various sources. After all his attempts failed, he sent his treasurer to procure a figurine in Toulouse. <coughs> the inconsist inconsistent testimony of the witnesses implicated either one or several Jews, or none in one version, in providing that wax figurine. Then, if you're not confused, you're not listening, okay. then a Jew either from Toulouse or from Avignon instructed Hugues in the, and had an accomplice, um, sorry, instructed Hugues and an accomplice in the use of the image. He taught them how to baptize it, instructed them to recite certain words, and he explained how and when to prick it. Here is just one of these descriptions. And the aforementioned bishop revealed the image in the presence of the witness and a Jew who had come from Toulouse, a teacher of this art. He baptized it, sprinkling holy water on it and anointing it with chrism, reciting prayers and words in a book he was holding. Afterwards, according to the instructions of the Jew, the aforementioned bishop pierced it in the stomach with a stylus and the witness pierced it in the side with a needle, saying, may those who persecute me be thwarted May his days be few. And the remaining verses of that psalm. Um, some things never go away. You can see in the United States these days uh, bumper <coughs> stickers that say Obama, Psalm 1088. Um, given the various conflicting details in these two trials, it's very, un it's very likely that the Jews and their roles were largely, perhaps entirely fabricated. The Jews mentioned in these records were never interrogated or even identified, whereas most of the secondary figures were brought in for questioning. Repeated instances of torture and interrogation shaped the depositions in Hughes' trial, pointing to an active contribution by both papal commissioners and the defendants in constructing a meaningful role for these Jews, one that included expertise in both the fabrication and use of wax images and the knowledge of the procedure for baptizing them. But now let's move west into Catalonia. The next example I've found is from Barcelona in 1334. The incident concerns a Jewish woman named Solona, and the details come from a letter that King Alfonso IV of Aragon wrote to the officials in Barcelona. I have understood that Solona, a Jewish, Jewess in Barcelona, was reported to you by my deputy that using magic she had two waxen hearts made, and she pricked them with two needles, one in each of the hearts, and had them placed inside the mattress on which Francisco and his wife Francisca slept, in order that Francisco's wife would suffer death from these things. She was allegedly hired by Francisco's lover to perform this magic. 
A few decades later, another Jewish woman, this time in Girona, was accused of using a figurine for a very different purpose. Bonanada Mergesa was interrogated by an inquisitor at some point between 1374 and 1378. The inquisitor's notebook preserves the following description. She makes a figure of gypsum and puts a needle into its heart, pricking the heart of the figurine of the man whom she makes arrive at once from remote places. Um, I used to think that this was a teleportation spell. It depends on how you interpret the word for at once. How does he arrive before your eyes, or does it mean that he hurries home? And I've become more convinced that it means he hurries home. Um, instead of harmful results, as in the other cases, here we have what appears to be a love spell. Both of the French trials mentioning Jews and figurines reveal hostility towards Jewish presence that was undoubtedly shaped by their expulsion from France during 1306 to 1315, as well as anxiety about relations between bishops and Jews. In fact, Hugues and his treasurer argued throughout the trial over which one of them knew the Jew personally, both trying to distance themselves from him. Indeed, association with Jews played a strong role in the trial in emphasizing the non-Christian behavior of Hugues and his conspirators. In contrast, the trials in Catalonia show much less narrative construction. The stories are straightforward without loaded imagery such as baptism. They're not the kind of, the kind of descriptions we would expect if Christian accusers were drawing on anti-Jewish fantasies, um, which among other things tended to present the use of wax figurines as an occupation of learned male Jews. And in fact, there's, I think, no better proof that we're dealing with uh, something that's not drawing on earlier fantasies, in that the trial of Salona is the first um, accusation that I've ever found, and I've spent quite a long time, uh, that Christians made against a Jewish woman of using sorcery. Back to the origins of Christianity. There's not a single case of Christians writing about Jewish women using magic until this trial in 1334. And in fact, if you go beyond the Christian tradition, include the entire Latin um, literature of antiquity, you can only add one more um, example from juvenile satires. And, even, and that's a problematic one. So presenting the woman in this way is not a traditional way to present ideas about Jews and magic. For reasons I'll mention shortly, there was less incentive to fabricate details in many such trials. If we assume some reality, these women themselves, these women themselves were surely real, which is not clear in either of the French trials. It is by no means impossible that they could have carried out these practices. If this is the case, perhaps the practice should not be viewed as learned and textually transmitted, but rather passed on by practice or word of mouth. Indeed, Christian writers of the 13th century considered it a form of popular magic, more likely to be found among women. The theologian um, William of Auvergne, for example, scornfully referred to the use of figurines as a practice of old women. So it was old women and male Jews who were traditionally the users of this. If there's no way to ever be certain about these two specific cases, the Catalonian trials may nevertheless offer a more accurate picture of the practice on the ground than any of the other sources, Jewish or Christian, about figurines. Let us consider more broadly the evidence of trials. Let me note that from here on out, the more visual portion of the presentation is over. For this section of the talk, 
I'll provide lists of the trials under discussion. I'll be comparing several of them in succession, and this should help follow the narrative. My corpus of trials consists of about 45 cases in the 14th and 15th centuries, and they include three types of trials. Christians on trial, who claim they had a Jewish accomplice, Jews who were directly on trial, and converts to Christianity, whose background as a Jew colors the trial. In other words, these are sorcery trials in which the issue of Jewish magic enters the courtroom in one form or another. And in the following analysis, I rely less on the evidence about converts than the other two types. I would like to begin with a survey of the trials in which Christian defendants claim to have drawn on the expertise of Jews, who are allegedly hired for their skill in magic. We've already seen the, the example of the trial in 1317, in which the defendants, with no small prompting from torture, come to claim that they hired a Jewish expert in wax figurines, a teacher of that art to instruct them in the ritual. There's a stronger historical basis for the Jews in other such cases. Before the completion of the trial in 317, the Archbishop Robert of Mauvoisin was also brought to trial at the papal court on several charges, including hiring the Jewish astrologer Moses of Tretz to make astrological predictions and curative astrological rings. Moses was not only real, he was actually brought in to testify, and we have his testimony. In Mallorca in 1345, King Pedro IV brought charges of sedition against the Christian defendant. Among these charges, there is concern over a certain Jewish necromancer, Nigromanticus, Master Menachem, Shortly thereafter, archival records show that the same Jew was now working as a physician for the king. Um, and one of the most famous accounts of Master Menachem is from Raphael Petai, who declares him to be an alchemist. Um, there is no evidence that he was. In 1381, in Paris, a Jew was allegedly hired to provide a love potion for a female Christian client. And around the same time in the city of Valencia, some Christians were accused of gathering to practice magical invocations and suffumigations in the home of a well-known Jewish magician. But perhaps the most high-profile example comes from the Council of Pisa in 1409, which was concerned with charges against the anti-popes Gregory XII and Benedict XIII. According to the testimony, Gregory employed a Jewish doctor who used magic and necromancy to predict the future of his papacy but apparently did not see the Council of Pisa coming. These details about Jews and alleged Jews needs to be taken, need to be taken with a healthy grain of salt, but they do suggest that some Jews were probably employed as magicians for hire, and in fact, we find the notion supported by the evidence of sorcery trials with Jewish defendants. We've already seen the case of Salona of Barcelona, who was accused of committing murder for hire by piercing wax hearts. In the middle of the 14th century, two cases in the city of Valencia concern um, similar kinds of divination. In 1352, Mose Porpeler and some unnamed Jews tried to discover the identity of a thief by hiring diviners. In 1360, Manasitore hired a, quote, Jewish sorceress or divineress, end quote, to find a lost object. In Morvedre, in 1393, a Jewish family was accused of hiring Christian, Jewish, and Muslim sorcerers to predict the future course of their child's illness. And finally, there's extensive testimony about the trial of Samuel of Granada, 
in the city of Valencia in 1416. He was said to be the city's only Jewish resident at the time, the rest having fled or converted uh, in the riots of 1391. The records show that not only was he, he a respected physician, and in one case marriage counselor, but was actually sought out frequently for his knowledge of magic. Even with all due caution for the sources, the detail in these trials suggests that some Jews served as professional magicians. We can find this conclusion supported in Hebrew sources as well, such as the Tashpetz Katan of Mayor of Rothenburg, which includes a passage on financial matters related to hiring somebody to discover the identity of a thief by invoking demons. It is, not, is often not clear if the type of magic these professionals practiced was any different or more learned than what we have seen in the common tradition. In a few cases, the hired professionals do show extensive learning. Samuel of Granada, Moses of Tretz. But in other cases, it is much more doubtful. But even the notion of the common tradition does not mean that everyone has knowledge of magic. And a local reputation for getting results may be more significant in such a profession than the complexity of magic that is being sold. But now I'd like to take this a step further. If these Latin trial sources offer some of our best evidence about Jewish professional magic, can they not also tell us about the non-professionals who are accused of magic? Now, there's no question that some biases, misrepresentations, and false accusations can appear in the sources. The aforementioned trials um, in 1317, it depicts an extensively fabricated Jewish magician. Around 1370, the head inquisitor of Aragon, Nicholas Emmerich, brought charges of learned diabolical magic against Astro de Piera of Barcelona. And in 1443, Claude Tolosan, one of the earliest witch hunters, oversaw the trial of a Jew, possibly a convert to Christianity, that was full of charges associated with the developing mythology of diabolical witchcraft. These trials stand out for the specific agendas of those in charge, in which the prosecution was clearly pushing for particular types of magical accusations. But many of the other trials against Jews have much simpler agendas. Since Jews, unlike their Christian neighbors, were not subject to the death penalty for sorcery, their punishment frequently came in the form of fines to be paid to the local ruler. And in some cases, the ruler also benefited by affirming his jurisdiction to put the Jews on trial in the first place. While there may have been incentives to increase the number of sorcery accusations against Jews, the type of inv magic involved was of little concern in the legal process. While we may not know the historical truth of any particular case, the accusations in these cases Again, maybe the closest we will ever to get to what average Jews were suspected of or perhaps even caught doing. And in this respect, these trials are remarkable sources. Um, divination is a technique referred to most frequently in the trials. Upwards of 11 trials mention divination, and that's some 20% of the corpus. In nearly all cases, it's performed by Jewish professionals on, the, on behalf of clients. And in all the other cases, the user is presented as learned or adept in magic. The use of figurines appears as many as five times. Uh, one case is difficult to interpret. We've already seen that the most plausible accounts of figurines are those attributed to women rather than those attributed to men. And from there, we can move on to other types of magic. In Doroka in 1334, the Jew Jaco Abutarda was on trial 
not for sorcery, but rather for miscegenation and punching a tax collector. The records note, however, that he appeared in court wearing an amulet that bore, quote, names, characters, and precious stones, end quote, meant to protect him from justice. Did it work? He was ultimately exonerated. A similar amulet appears as well in a heresy trial of 1320 against the suspected Cathar, Beatrice of Planisol. Upon her arrest, Beatrice was found in the possession of some unusual items, including an umbilical cord and a bloody cloth. She explained that a former Jewess had taught her how to use the umbilical cord as an amulet to win in legal disputes. And this Jewess also taught her to preserve her daughter's first menstrual blood for use in a love potion. Beatrice's source may or may not be fictional, but there is nothing implausible about the story either, as similar techniques are tested in both Jewish and Christian writings. Beatrice's love potion points to popular pr practice, and perhaps so too does uh, Boninata Merges' use of the figurine as a love potion, as a love spell. Otherwise, the two other cases involving love magic presented as the purview of professionals. Several trials from the late 15th century in Italy simply referred to Jews casting spells on people, often each other, uh, with very little indication of what this entailed, though in one case it does seem to have involved causing an illness. Notably, popular images of magical healing are absent from the sources. But we must keep in mind that not all types of magic are represented equally in such trials, and it is not surprising that healing is mentioned only when accompanied by other, more problematic forms of magic, um, and always in a learned context. Um, healing magic was one of the most uh, widely accepted forms of magic in the Christian world, and so we can see that it wouldn't be a surprise if it doesn't show up. Finally, there are a few cases that either, mis that either represent misinterpretations or are simply odd. For example, in Teruel in 1388, three Jewish women were accused of sorcery because they wound seven strings of different colors throughout the Jewish quarter. I have yet to discover the connection between this activity and suspicion of sorcery, and I am tempted to conclude that they were simply playing that treasure hunt party game where you follow different colored strings like we had at my eighth birthday party. But if it was a magical practice, it is hardly a technique that Christian observers would invent. Uh, it is not out of the question that here we have an oral practice for which no ex explanation survives. You've now seen samples of Jewish magic from many different sources, and I did not even speak on issues such as vernacular Jewish magic. Um, which exists, and there's also Latin Jewish magic. If we limit our understanding of popular Jewish magic just to oral traditions, we won't get far. And if we rely too heavy, heavily on the evidence of elite texts, we will form a biased perspective of Jewish magic. There are many inherent difficulties in the attempt to categorize magic, and popular versus learned is only one of them. I have proposed here that questions of access and circulation are more significant for this distinction than the apparent simplicity or com complexity of a given spell. After all, the elite surely knew aspects of the common tradition and may have used popular magic just as much as anybody else. And even if learned magic may begin in specialized contexts, it does not necessarily stay there forever. By reconsidering what it means for magic to be popular, 
we not only have access to more data, we are in a better position to evaluate the significance of magical beliefs and practice in medieval Jewish cultures. Thank you. We're all tired. Thank you for your very interesting presentation. Could you just explain something about um, Jews being fined for sorcery, and but Christians, about obviously not. Right. So um, for Christians, sorcery uh, by this time was identified clearly as heresy um, because it was seen implicitly as drawing on the help of demons. Um, and by drawing on the help of demons, it was seen as a form of worship given to demons, therefore a form of heresy, and the punishment for heresy was execution. Um, for Jews, it's, it's more of a civil crime. It, it can't be considered heresy for Jews. We have one inquisitor who does try to make the case that it should be considered heresy for Jews, and this doesn't catch on. But for them, it's it's more of a um, you know it's more a matter of breaking the king's laws and what the what the punishment is for breaking the king's laws. Um, so it's so for that it's, the punishment isn't execution. The punishment um, that's that's determined is a fine, and this works out really well for the the king or the local ruler. But there's, there's nothing about the accusation when applied to Jews that brings it up to the level of seriousness that it does in the case of Christians. Uh, thank you very much for this um, amazing survey of all sorts of things. Very, very interesting material. Um, give you a lot to chew on. Materials which we don't know anything about, of course, so if someone like you can uncover those. So. Um, uh, I'd like to, if possible, discuss a little bit this notion of access and circulation. I'm particularly interested in that it links up a little bit with Nadia's paper this morning where we have uh, calendars in prayer books. And the, the, the idea that it's in a prayer book meaning that it's more popular, you know, versus government or whatever we make of this. Uh, and I want to ask you a question about this because I, I'm not sure I've got it right then. You can probably elaborate on this. But it seemed to me that quite a few of the examples you showed from prayer books were not in fact the main text, but were marginal notes, uh, possibly in, in other hands, uh, in cursive writing, um, which might have been added by owners of the books or by... So, I mean, you please clarify this. But um, if it's the way I've understood it, then what's really happening is that um, people who own prayer books um, decide uh, if it's a convenient piece of, uh, you know, there's a blank piece of paper here, and if it's a convenient right. place to jot down some of your for, for somebody some who has esoterical knowledge that you, as the owner of the, the manuscript, might possess. In other words, it's not a text which is meant to be accessible or designed to be accessible. It is only something which a private owner writes in, and which could therefore be categorised of non-accessible. So I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit unsure right. about this distinction between accessible and non-accessible uh, distribution and so on. Now, um, Eamon Duffy has written very nicely about this phenomenon in um, pre-Reformation prayer books in the Christian world. <coughs> the, the blank pages um, 
in the prayer books were used uh, by Christians to note down all sorts of uh, charms and things that they had access to. But if we go back through this, this is, you could say it's not part of the liturgy, but this is part of the text itself. This was written by the scribe who created the prayer book. Um, so was this, so was this. Um, there is marginalia down here that's related to this. Um, is, it the same, is it the same hand? Yes, it is. It, um, or as much as we can tell, it's a, it's a text where they have small, um, small text used often for headings and descriptions and bigger text, but it's written in conjunction with the, the Sidor as a, as a whole. But again, it's at that point I asked you, these are 14th, 15th century Italy, at least the first two parmas, as right. I recall you saying, and maybe the third. We've got to overlay the complication, but go ahead, finish, finish this complication, mm -hmm. I'll give you one more um, because it's terrific. The, these are added in the margins at the back right. um, on blank pages, but this is part of, this is an integral part of the text, this one's an integral part of the text. Um, this one is the, the elite one, so it was written right. all there. Um, this, these were integral parts of the text, this is an integral part of countless pseudonyms. So, um, so it's not limited to marginalia. They do appear in marginalia, but actually just as much, I think, more of this material is actually written by the scribe, uh, commissioned as part of the Sidur, and not uh, an addition by a private user. That, well, that part was certainly... Um, <coughs> Oh, that was back in the previous section, sorry. Right, this one is <laughs> certainly a, an addition in the margin. And it's also a little bit later than most of the other material being in the 16th century. Um, but I just love showing that one, so it made its way in here. But I, I do have a lot of other examples um, where, again, it's, this material is built into the prayer book. Um, these kinds of the spells for seafaring are put amongst the occasional blessings, usually next to filata der and things like that. Um, very, very commonly part of the, the book itself. Uh, you know, just to complicate this a little bit, though, um, between the addenda and the manuscripts themselves, I was trying to, you know, sort of jot this down as you went through them. Some of these I'm familiar with, some of them I'm not, but there seems to be a change here, and, and not that it's not part of the Middle Ages. It is. But in terms of even Trachtenberg, I think this is great. I'd love, I'd love to see what happens here. But there seems to be a change in the 14th century. That's pre-14th century. You get, it seems, whether in the body, with exceptions, but in the body or as these notes, you get almost nothing. Again, there's a shift to Italy in terms of place of, of where these things are being written. So not that Italy isn't in Europe and not that the 14th century is in the Middle Ages, but some, I think it's a lot more... Um, it's a lot more defined chronologically and geographically than, than you know, it, it as a Trachtenberg and, and all of us are working with, you know, high middle ages, working with Germany, working with northern France, very little of that there that's not specialized. In other words, so the question is what happens, and, and I'll, go, I'll just throw in one more complication. Until the end of the 13th century, to the mid-13th century, written sidurim for most people in the north are just not that common. The sidurim are for the chazanim, are for the specials, and so on. So, so, so the question is, if you're right, and I think this is terrific stuff, 
what's happening that makes this shift because in other words it's all of a sudden that we get all of a sudden meaning in the 14th, 15th centuries and then beyond that we get much more of this so to speak popular material you know Sidur material where it might not just be for the Chazan or for some other specialist so there, there's something you know there's a chronological issue here and a geographic issue that I'm not sure what the answer is but that might be very significant in terms of what you're saying I, I think um, you know, I compiled an enormous amount of data on um, Sidorim, and I haven't um, oh, yeah. analyzed it. Right, let's see if when you go through it, so I'll, things, I'll see if there's things break out. But right. what I remember, and, and don't quote me on this uh, officially, but I do think I remember some 13th century examples from Spain. Not from okay. not from Ashkenaz. Okay. Okay. Which again, this may be significant. That's fine. I remember but, tracing yeah. a few spells that seem to move from Spain um, and then appear in Italian Sidorim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that complicates it even more if, I, right. if I'm recalling the dates of those. Right. Yeah. No. Um, so just I, my my suggestion is just just you've got to you know as you're correctly mm-hmm. doing. Is it specialized? Is it broader? Is it is it? And, and Sasha's comments are well in place here. Is it for the owner? Is it for all? Are people actually saying this? Right. And we're being very, as you were so cautious with all the material, chronologically and geographically, you may have, you may or may not have more uh, limited limited phenomena here. And the question then is, what happens to cause this change? So it's not it's not really so old. It's newer, and why? I distinctly remember when I was going through. Um, yeah, prayer there, books but that, the, that Ashkenaz was not paying off as early as, as the other one. And that's, and that's again, I, as you know, I agree with you a, a million percent that Trachtenberg this, is tremendously skewed. I mean, the guy, you know, as you suggested, the guy was writing in 1939 in the middle of Pennsylvania. He was writing, you know, in the middle of the forest of Pennsylvania. He was a communal rabbi somewhere. It's unbelievably excellent work. But, but what I'm saying is that the stuff that he was focused on, the, the Sefer Hasidim period, mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a lot here that will, that doesn't mean it's not, it's extremely valuable, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure there's a lot here that will, that will negate, you know, his non-findings, even though mm-hmm. you're much, you're, you're, you're defining it much more correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's I'm trying, more trying to suggest an alternative. No, no, it's very, it's terrific. Or a couple alternatives. <laughs> Just by the way, a quick comment on the divination. I can get you that Tashbed's divination. I can get it into, for you into the 12th century in, in Isaac of Dompierre. The problem is they consider the diviner an absolute specialist. He's mm-hmm. getting paid top dollar because we don't know what he does. And, 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 and they're clear on that. In other words, so the good news is you can have those diviners floating around earlier. The bad news is this is not something people were trying at home. They were... Right. But that, that fits my findings, in which n- in not a single one of the 11 cases was divination something that people were doing at home. That's it, was, it was always hiring a professional, or they were themselves of, of such high learning right. that, they, that they did it. So it, there is some um, corroboration good. there. Good. Okay, good. Thank you. It's terrific. So, um, I'm going to ask you another couple of comparative points from the Latin tradition. Oh, wonderful. Latin examples at the front of manuscripts, and it's and they're often protective, and it's clear that partly they've been put in there by users current or later to protect the book itself. Um, so mm-hmm. not it's not marginalia in the same way, but it's still on a loose leaf, but it's got a second function to protect the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And in terms of accessibility, it might be also useful to view these as blueprints. Um, and John uh, Skane has done some work on this. We have surviving examples in the Latin tradition, um, magic squares and similar mm -hmm. small diagrams that survive on loose leaves of parchment mm -hmm. and with multiple examples. And it's not just that this is one thing, this square is there so that you can copy it out right. into separate parchment. Well, and that's certainly and the case in, that would not you know, in most of these examples, right, where we see yeah. it written, that's not the amulet itself. It's the, it's the instruction for it. I mean, here you're supposed to, to write it on the food. Um, here you're supposed to write it on a bowl um, or on a piece <coughs> of earthenware. Um, again, here, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not serving its function in the book itself, right? It's a template for, you know, along with the instructions. Um, but it's also, it gives you all of the visual that you need. You don't have to be, um, all you need to know is the alphabet. Copy these, copy these letters, um, follow the instructions, which are, are fairly simple. Uh, so it's presumably a template that you don't need so much learning to follow. Presumably, then you need to. It's a very interesting perspective um, on common tradition, specialized. You need a kind of model of survival rate mm -hmm. um, of different types of manuscript, different regions, and everything to kind of impose on that. So it's that we're not judging one survival by a lack of circulation when a particular genre. Mm hasn't survived for various reasons to do with later interest in you. Absolutely, and that's why I think I, I take an approach that's, I try to take an approach that's maybe more skeptical than it needs to be. When I say some of these stuff, some of these things we just haven't seen them elsewhere. It doesn't mean they weren't elsewhere, but we haven't found them yet. And so that's where I, I get hesitant to call it part of the common tradition. Whereas in other cases, um, and this is where these, these categories get us something a little different from the traditional popular learned divide, because something doesn't have to be found frequently to be part of the common tradition. Um, right? the common, to say it's part of the common tradition tells you who in theory might use it, but it doesn't tell you who in fact used it, um, which is such a, a textual problem in the field of magic. It's sort of the, the second level of that question. Who could theoretically use it? Who did use it? And we're very limited, um, you know, even more than in the Latin tradition. Uh, there are fewer manuscripts that show these things actually in use. So yeah, there's, there are definitely limitations in that, um, limitations in the circulation. Things like the, the magic in the prayer books you can find more examples than anything else because once they become part of that text in the prayer book they seem they seem to get copied around I mean one scribe is using you know this this book to to make some other copies includes things in it and those you can find more examples than than just about anything else or some of the some of the very famous spells the opening of the heart spell even if it looks a little bit different each time you see it um, becomes well enough known that you start to see it almost everywhere. But yeah, these are excellent, um, these are excellent points and it's, they're problems in the study of magic. The, 
these, these are the points of frustration. I, I, I don't know whether you mm -hmm. have considered, and I don't myself know how to frame it, but in terms of the flow from top down and from bottom up, I, I can't, I can't not, I can't exclude uh, the rich material that is admittedly later than your period, 16th century, the very beginning of the 17th, and that's Chaim Vital's mm -hmm. Book of Visions, where there are descriptions galore of him, disciple of the Ari, one of the great theoretical Kabbalists we have, going to consult women who are practicing Talmudic magic. Sarei Bohen, Sarei Shemen, they are divining in public places. He goes to consult and he pays them for their services. Mm -hmm. he, he, he takes them very seriously. And he, he also goes to consult some Muslim practitioners mm -hmm. in his environment. That's in Safed, in Jerusalem, and in Damascus, in the three mm -hmm. places that are covered in the diary. So, it's a, and I, I mean, to me, when I first read it, it was a revelation, because we don't know about these things from mm -hmm. any other source. And this text has survived. The unique manuscript came to light only in the 1940s. Um, and it suggests, and the way that Vital describes it, without needing to apologize or explain or justify, it's part of his normal environment. So one gets the impression that this was ubiquitous in his environment. It's, it's a great point. Um, I don't want to take from his experience and apply it back to medieval obviously. Europe, because we, yeah, have both a, we have both a time issue and a place issue there. Um, there seems to be... Somebody, somebody who knows uh, the 16th century and beyond can perhaps correct me on this, but there seems to be an opening up about this kind of um, social contact, I would say starting around the time of Josef Almano in the 15th century, who, who was very open about going to talk with, Jewish, er, with Christian magicians. Um, and I think that the, the character of 16th century magic, even in Europe, changes radically from that even from 100 years before um, for a variety of you know the social the social life of Jews changes completely um, at the end of the 15th century um, and this new Christian Hebraism that's popping up with Flavius Mithridates and Pico and in the same uh, context as Joseph Almano um, starts to make Jewish magic something that is sought out more openly by Christians. And so the nature of our data changes so much that I'm very cautious about even, you know, from, let's say, the second quarter of the 16th century trying to extrapolate back because, because of such a drastic change. Do I think these kinds of things were happening? I think certainly to some extent. I think the trials show to an extent the these kind of people going to see these women who are, um, you know, this woman Salona, who apparently knows these techniques, people gathering together, Jews and Christians gathering together in the house of this well-known Jewish magician um, to learn about magic, to talk about magic. We get glimpses into these things, but we don't get the kind of detail that we start to get later on. Um, we have to use our imagination, but not go too far with it either. Thank you very much.